Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Clam. Welcome everyone to episode four of Gatekeeper. First, more thanks to everyone listening and sending in great feedback so far. It's helped us, as I'm proud to announce that we are in the new and noteworthy section on iTunes Comedy Podcasts. And then I have in the notes that you woot and clap. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, I think we're probably more on the new side than the noteworthy side at this point. But even in its early days, Gatekeeper is noteworthy for being the only podcast about the world of booking that also uses sound effects like and in North America. El Mundial de Reservas, that's the name of Argentina's podcast booking world, for those that aren't in the know. We salute your great wisdom on the art of decision-making and your amazing use of... ...on your podcast. Congratulations. And a quick shout-out to Google Translator for bringing this joke to life. Fun fact, I like to constantly undermine my credibility as a comedy booker. Okay, moving on. So I am super excited about today's guest on Gatekeeper. Brent Forrester is currently an executive producer and the showrunner on the new Netflix series Love, co-written and produced by Judd Apatow. His resume is, for lack of a better phrase, a comedy nerd's wet dream. Note to self, there's got to be a better phrase than comedy nerd's wet dream for future reference. Brent has written for The Ben Stiller Show, The Simpsons, King of the Hill, Mr. Show, and The Office, which he also directed several episodes of. And even with his busy schedule, Brent over the last now decade has been a writing mentor for me, but also a constant source of inspiration. And I think you'll get a sense of his magnetic enthusiasm as soon as you start listening. Just a little bit of a preface. This interview was actually recorded in 2014 for an earlier project that never actually saw the light of day. I recorded a handful of interviews and like many creative endeavors, I've started over the years and I'm sure all of us have started over the years. I got gun shy and created valid excuses for not shipping. Luckily, when I dug this up, I found that it was absolutely still relevant, and so upcoming episodes of Gatekeeper might include relics of past projects that that match the theme of this podcast. Now, before we continue, a few notes and glossary terms that come up in this episode and might come up in future episodes. Number one, La Encantada. In my ongoing life mission to enchant the world, I created a company called La Encantada that I used to brand the live shows and other projects I created. It's in hibernation right now as I'm focused on booking the improv, but one day shall live on, so find it and follow it on Facebook, facebook.com. Number two, Immaculata. Now it sounds very Catholic-y, but Immaculata was simply what I initially called a 30-day cleanse I did periodically to jumpstart my health and productivity. For 30-day periods, I'd cut out booze, smoking of things. I exercised daily, practiced meditation, and it really did change my life for the better. In 2010, I started a blog and Facebook community called Immaculatize to motivate other artists to make healthy choices in line with their creative goals. And over the course of a couple of years, the group helped raise thousands of dollars for charity. And a lot of great stuff came out of it for a lot of people. It too is in hibernation, but you can read more about it at jamieflam.com. Finally, just keep in mind that this interview was recorded a while ago. So it might come across a little bit differently than some of the other gatekeeper interviews that we've had to this point. But I really think anyone listening will get a lot out of it, especially anyone looking for a career in comedy writing and producing for television. So enjoy the conversation. 
And don't forget to when you My name is Jamie Flam, and I'm very excited in my home right now for a very special interview, Mr. Brent Forrester. Good morning. It is morning, isn't it? Um, welcome. Thank you very much. How is your morning going? Uh, it's great. I'm here in your apartment, which I've never seen. Uh, it's kind of amazing. My it's- apartment framed posters of comedy shows that you've put on ideas like the Encantada, which I remember was just a crazy idea of yours that I see became a show (laughs) and then a poster that you framed. So I'm kind of delighted to be here. Well, I found that if you put something in a frame, it becomes official, whether other people know it or not. It's better than a doctor's diploma. It's the Encantada. The La Encantada. Sorry. La Encantada. It's okay. It's still a dream, but uh, this podcast is a long cantata production. I am so happy to be a part of this thing that you just thought of one day and then <laughs> made happen. Well, encantata means enchanting or enchanted. Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you as one of the first guests on the show, you're one of the most enchanting fellows I've ever met. Uh, thank you. It is, to some degree, an act that is deliberate, <laughs> but I'll take it, man. That's what I'm trying to be. Well, I met you probably six or seven years ago now. Do you remember? I remember that you had uh, shows that you were putting on. I can't remember how we first met. The West Side Eclectic. Of course. I was running this small theater in Santa Monica. Yes. I think you showed up with Michelle Balloon. Yeah, funny that's comic. right. Yeah. I think it was a storytelling show and we got to chatting and yeah. And then we got coffee. Yeah. Uh-huh. I remember. we started doing shows. That's right. I remember you and I related to you as a young artist because basically everybody in every art whether it be comedy, writing, painting, music, anything, we're all entrepreneurs of a certain kind. Mm-hmm. And there's something that characterizes our lives that does not characterize the life of a doctor or a plumber, which is they have a certain stability to their economic lives that, right. that artists never do, no matter how successful they are. Uh, and so we always relate to each other. The, those of us who are older than those of us who are younger remember uh, the young artists. And, and it's easy to relate to um, the ambitions and anxieties of, of the young artist, which I have always uh, uh, related to in you, as we certainly share uh, both ambition and anxiety in relation sure. to our art forms. Well, I thought it was just cool because, I mean, even seven years ago, you were at the top of the game. Mm, thank you. Uh, you know, just, you know, in your resume, it speaks for itself um, as, as a young comedy fan. Mm-hmm. You know, Simpsons. Right. Mr. Show. Ben Stiller Show. King of the Hill. King of the Hill. The Office. The Office. That's like, you know, the Mount Rushmore of... Uh, the Mount Rushmore of the comedy shows. Thank you. I also have one scene in Mike Judge's office space and uh, two recurring bits on the uh, old Conan O'Brien show to round out my comedy credentials. And that's amazing. And, and even then, seven years ago, um, you know, you, you, were, you had the time and energy, um, despite your busy schedule, to you know, take the time to, to give me some, some helpful hints. Great. I'm glad. <laughs> I hope they did help. Um, yeah, I, I and I'm still learning a ton. I, I feel that I am learning more now at this stage than at any time previously. It seems like whenever I try to apply my brain analytically to the process of writing half-hour comedy, uh, I learn new things, and I'm happy to share everything I know with you. So, what do, what is most? What do you most want to know about uh, from my experience? Well, this part, I mean, the, the theme of this podcast is the search. 
Um, and there's three main things which I outlined before the show. How so number one, how do you get shit done? Yeah. And there's the kind of the cliches and the things that everyone says, just do it. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of young artists need that extra push. Yes. Well, what does just do it mean? I mean, I know it means just pick up a pen or start typing, but right. is there another layer to that? For sure, for sure. The big thing you can do to increase your productivity as an artist is to involve some other human being for accountability. So what I do is I have friends who are writers and I'll say to them, hey, I'm working on something. Can you read it? And they know that at one time they can call me and say, I'm working on something. Can you read it? And a lot of writers have that sort of uh, uh, professional courtesy network going on. And I overtly use it. I literally will say to someone uh, in the early stages of writing a script, I say, can I come to you and talk about it? And I'll buy somebody lunch and just impose upon them for as long as they'll listen uh, to everything I'm thinking about this project, this story, what I think is funny about it, what the themes are, uh, what the voices sound like of the characters, anything. Now, I've noticed in the writer's room, there's a process that uh, works for creating half-hour comedy. And it's taken me a long time to figure this out. But basically, I can always guarantee you an A-plus script if you give me three weeks. This is how I break it down. Week one, talk about it. So in the writer's room, we have a bunch of writers there. So I say, what's the story? What are we working on? Let's talk about it. What could it be? What are the ideas? What's funny about this? And day after day, we talk about it. And it begins to take form. We throw this out. We think, no, let's go this way. What it's really about is this. By the end of that week, you should have an outline, meaning you've committed to act breaks and an ending. You know all your scenes. Your outline should look like interior this and a description of the action. Exterior that, description of the action. It's a simple document to work with. Week two, you go and write a draft of the script. Now, in the writing of the draft, I also have a process which I highly recommend. And it is do the first draft as quickly as possible. My friend Judd Apatow, who hired me on the Ben Stiller show, sure. uh, was not trained as a writer, mm-hmm. but is a very uh, successful writer. His method uh, includes the use of the vomit pass, which is a term I believe he coined. And it really is what it sounds like. No editing. Simply execute that outline as uh, quickly as you can. Uh, Get from fade in to fade out as quickly as you can. Generally, you can do it in a day with an outline if you simply put aside the critical mind Mm -hmm. and do not second guess yourself and tinker with lines. The first line that comes out of your mouth, pretty much put it down. Okay, that's the vomit pass. Print it out. Take a look at it. uh, Do another pass at it. Repeat. Uh, as many times as you can in that week that you're writing your draft. Generally, I would say a a writer in five days of of work can get through vomit pass, polish of vomit pass, (laughs) punch of uh, polish, and that is your first draft. Now you return that to, on a professional show, to the room, and you get your feedback. My point is, replicate this process outside of the writer's room. So week one... Talk to as many people as you can. Buy as many people lunch as you can. Call your dad. Pitch to your girlfriend. Anybody. Uh, Week two, write it. Week three, show it to people. So on a television show, what we do is we have all the writers read it. We do notes. We do two days of rewriting before a table read, which is a big look at it. It's a public examination of the work. And then three days of rewriting after the table read. And we lock the script and shoot it. And it's always a professional uh, grade script in that process. 
I'm basically replicating it outside of the room now. Mm-hmm. So I recommend the same. That's awesome. I mean, so the takeaway, I would say, is just create your own writer's room. Yes, exactly. The, the key is to get that feedback, and you have to schedule it. You have to email people and call them when you're not in a writer's room. Mm-hmm. That's the great advantage we have. We don't have to call anybody. They're all there. But if you don't, that's what you got to do. And your other writer friends will know enough to say yes because they're going to impose upon you and get that feedback as well. That's awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. It, it's taken me a long time to figure out. And, and, you know, we were talking, Jamie and I, earlier about the uh, psychological and emotional paralysis that so many writers fall into. I would say most, if not all, writers fall into it. Uh, and the cure for me has been uh, the social aspect. I absolutely feel uh, resistance to writing when I have to do it alone. And I feel none of it when I'm on a television show. To me, when I'm on a show, it's a social activity. Mm-hmm. We start at 10 and we're talking and we're, and we're laughing and we're thinking and we're imagining creating socially. What could be more fun than that? It's great. No, that's my favorite thing I ever do, whether it's working with Kevin or Vanessa or, or anyone. Just laughing, coming up with dumb ideas is yeah. the most rewarding and fun part of it all. Exactly. And how great if you can make your career out of it. And that really is the dream. Interestingly, I was at USC Film School last week talking to some of the students there. And something that interested me was that they had talked to a lot of people in television before me. And they wanted to talk about why everyone was so miserable uh, on television shows. It really concerned them because these are people who are trying to break into TV and everybody who works in TV is telling them how awful it is. I really think that this is an error of those people who are feeling awful about the television industry. In fact, if you deprive those people of that job for a year or two, they would be begging to get it back. And it's really important to recognize that. You know, the American ideal has always been to retire from your job. And we, in our generation, inherited that idea. I certainly did. My entire career, I was plotting to uh, save enough that I could quit working. And it's only recently that I've begun to realize how mistaken that idea is. Uh, Timothy Ferris, the guy who wrote the four-hour yeah, work week, so he points out uh, this idea that that in today's economy, if you, if you can get enough money to retire, that probably means you are a very ambitious person who liked working anyway. Mm-hmm. You're not going to want to retire. He thinks the whole idea is wrong and that basically uh, what a person should do is go at their job for a while and do a mini retirement. Mm-hmm. At the very least, I think it's worth looking at the entertainment industry and how great it is and can be when it's working well. And that's kind of the vibe that I'm bringing to it this, at this point in my career. What, what is at this point in your career? I mean, you've, you've, mm-hmm. you've hit so many milestones that people aspire to. Is it having your own vehicle that you're writing and producing yourself? That is a great question. And for most TV writers, that is the ambition, is to create a show uh, on your own. That's considered to be the brass ring and what everybody goes after. Recently, though, I've begun to recognize that there is another extremely satisfying and possibly more satisfying position to be in. As it turns out, most TV shows, certainly half-hour comedies, the showrunner is not able to do everything. It's just a truism. You can't do it. You're responsible for editing. You're responsible for being on the set. And you're responsible for the writing of the scripts. Well, the showrunner cannot do them all. And so, inevitably, the shows work best when the showrunner deputizes a number two to be the runner of the room, the room runner, effectively the head writer of the show. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, officially, the showrunner is still the head writer, but on the day-to-day, the number two is. And that's the position that I've 
sort of returned to occupying. That's the position I had on King of the Hill, which was kind of the highest I rose in TV and then went off on kind of a long journey of rewriting features and being a consultant and trying to launch pilots. In the last two seasons, I've returned to that number two position. I'm finding it very satisfying because I'm the leader of the writers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's maybe where I most like to be. I find that when you're the leader of the writers, you have enormous influence over their well-being. You can make them the happiest people in the world because, in fact, they love this job. If only you can insulate them from all the fucking stress mm-hmm. that is coming from the corporate side and to some degree from the actors and everyone else who at any time can turn to you and go, my entire life is on the line here with every word you write. Mm-hmm. That pressure uh, demoralizes writers, but it's not necessary for them to feel it. And if you're the leader, you can simply start the day and go, guys, you're here for a reason. You did not get in this door without being extremely talented. My job is to see that talent and hear it in everything you say. I will find it as your leader and encourage it and watch how great this is. We're just writers writing stuff for actors that are going to go perform it. And then somebody's going to film that. It's just fantastic. What would be bad about this? So that's the position I occupy now. Well, let me ask you, what was the opposite of that? What is the industry standard for that position? Most people, if you ask them about their experiences working on a television show, will complain about how horrible it was. And the reason is because there's still a feeling that a television writer, his or her job, is it's so competitive to get it that if you do get it, we own you. Meaning we can tell you to come in at any point in the morning and you will leave when we tell you to leave. And frankly, we're not even going to tell you when you're going to leave. So you're just basically on call all the time. Uh, Many, many showrunners feel that they're not getting their money's worth unless they have the writers working there until midnight every night. And I personally think that is untrue. If you really look at writers and their energies and how they work efficiently, you know, historically, writers can be brilliant for about four hours a day. You keep them there longer than that, and with good reason, because in the second half of the day, uh, maybe the three who are on fire this morning are resting, and the other three are on fire in the afternoon. But when you really look at it that way, you're staggering a writing process. You do not need everyone to be there 14 hours a day. I think that is the main reason writers uh, complain. The other one is that the stress that the showrunner feels can be conveyed very easily to the writers and create a horrible, negative, punitive environment. And the showrunner frequently does feel stress because what creates stress? Many things, I'm sure. Hunger, uh, fighting for resources. We don't have to deal with that in TV. But we do have the following. Extreme deadline pressure. Mm-hmm. If you look at your life and when you stress out, Time pressure is the most consistent thing that will stress you out. I guarantee it. I was late for a table read the other day of a show that was not mine. It did not matter if I showed up. If I didn't show up, no one would have known. I was five minutes late and my heart was pounding. I was sweating in my armpits. I knew rationally it didn't matter. Time pressure will stress you out. In TV, you have the maximum amount of time pressure. Mm -hmm. Here's why. If you, Jamie, are a rich executive and you're paying for a television show uh, and you're going to shoot 13 episodes in 13 weeks, um, okay, you can't just start shooting in week one. You need some scripts, so you've got to back it up a little in pre-production. Now, you're a man who doesn't like to waste money. How many weeks of pre-production do those writers need? Three weeks? You'll pay for three weeks. They say they want four. They want eight. They want 12. No, no. We'll give them the bare minimum, mm-hmm. and that's what you get. So we work under the bare minimum amount of time to do it. 
The other factors are subjectivity. What happens when there is no right answer and everybody is debating it? That creates pressure. And then finally, enormous amounts of money. Money will always create stress and fear. Money is the great source of fear in America. That's where fear comes from, for the most part, mm-hmm. since we're not getting eaten by not tigers. Not having money. <laughs> not having money, this, the, the risking money, et cetera. So the corporate side is always going to feel fear because they're risking money. And they feel that if they lose money, their careers are at stake. So that fear will always be there. That combined with time pressure and subjectivity can create enormous stress on those who are interacting regularly with the corporate side. And that's the showrunner generally. The writers, however, need not really interact with that energy too much and can be insulated and work best when they're insulated from it. So you figured out the art of leading the writing room. I believe so. I believe, honestly, that I'm the best uh, runner of writers alive. Uh, but I don't really know if that's true because I haven't worked a bunch of other places. So uh, I could be full of it. But I feel like that's the brand I should be going out with. And insofar as you have millions of listeners, I thought I would, uh, <laughs> I would repeat that on the airwaves. Um, let me ask you this. Is there a way for you to create your own show and then be the head of the writing room and find that other person that can have that role? Yeah, I think there is for sure. You could go out, create a show, and then hire as your number two the person who handles all the stuff that you don't want to do. I haven't noticed that happen. What I notice is the showrunner thinks that he or she is going to run the writer's room, but has completely deluded him or herself. The power of delusion is remarkable in the showrunner. You you know, I'm sure it'll happen to me and you when we're showrunners that we will think we can do it all. But of course it is impossible because the running of the writing room is a full-time job. You have to be there at least eight hours a day, focused hours, and no showrunner can really do it. What I find is that the showrunners generally are good for about two days uh, in the writer's room. And where I like to see them is the day that we are locking the table read draft, because that's a big draft. We're going to read that thing in public tomorrow, right? So the showrunner should be there on that one. And then the day that we lock the script for shooting, because that's the final version. And that's all I really need the, uh, the showrunner there for. Hey, everyone, this is Jamie. Not 2014, Jamie, uh, 2016, Jamie. Just letting you know that the conversation took a little bit of a tangent at this point into a new subject. And there was an awkward space that we had to fill. So I am now filibustering, if you will, to get us to that next point in the show. Sound effect, and then we're back in action. Boom. Are you happy? I am happy in general, yes. I definitely fluctuate a lot, like any human being, I presume. And I'm very interested in the topic of happiness. I go to a therapist, probably I'll get a run of it going like 12 sessions, you know, at least once a year. I'm a big fan of, of therapy. Um, it's kind of a no-brainer for me. I mean, I have a, a WGA card, so my my therapy's covered by insurance. Oh, cool. Once you realize that and your copay is like $9 or something, it is so much more fun for me to go to a therapy session than to a movie, mm-hmm. for example, because I'm just sitting there talking about myself for an hour. What's more interesting than that? And I have some professional who has insights into life telling me his or her advice back. So do you think there's a correlation between writing a script and, and, have, and finding your own writing room, the person that you're talking to? And getting all your ideas out for this next project you're going to work on and going to therapy and working out your own story? Oh, I think there's a definite correlation. And, you know, you look at, at uh, uh, great writers 
that I've known, many of them were in therapy, and it's part of why they were so good. I'm thinking specifically of Judd Apatow. Apatow was hitting his therapist like in his 20s, and the guy was so wise about human emotions so early on. He also became very comfortable with self-confession. And if you look at his work, it's what makes him a great artist, is his absolute uh, shameless courage at sharing every detail of his life, which you get from yakking away in front of a professional behind closed doors i think mm-hmm. um well i have some thoughts on happiness I oh mean, yeah go yeah. go for it well, okay so so i have an operative uh um theory of happiness right now for myself if i feel out of balance and i feel there's something upsetting me and i don't feel fulfilled and satisfied there are three places that i look there just are these three categories for me one is my relationships so that would be my family my wife my relationship to my daughter and to my friends those relationships are key to happiness. And if there's something amiss with them, then that's always going to make me feel unsettled. The other two places are career. You know, if you're stressing over your career, you're going to feel stressed. The third one for me is, for want of a better term, physical health. Now, I take it to the level of athleticism, which is a source of great satisfaction and enjoyment for me. But I noticed that if one of those three things is um, out of balance, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect me. I, if I go a long run without uh, exercising, I start to bum out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, If I'm in some kind of disagreement with my wife, that'll bum me out if I'm stressing over career. But I've learned to separate them out and kind of take them you know, piece by piece for sure. I remember one of the first times we met um, for coffee, one of your biggest pieces of advice was just just start running, start doing some sort of exercise. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, with my Immaculata thing, yeah. which is, you know, when I'll do a 30 or to 60 or 90 days of just, you know, no drinking and yeah. exercising. Um, I've gone through it so many times now. What the point I'm trying to make is that two weeks ago, I finally decided after months of not exercising, I got to hit the gym every day and I'm just doing the treadmill. But that to me has to be the constant of all the things, you know, cutting out drinking and cutting out and eating well, those are all important as well. But the, the endorphins and just the general sense of well-being that I get, yeah. I think exercise is absolutely key. I totally agree. And it's really interesting the way a little bit of physical fitness can help you in the other aspects of your life, for sure in, in career and dealing with career stress. What I noticed is anything that you do that uh, gets your breathing up, increases your cardio, uh, helps you in the world of work because you'll notice that when you get into any kind of interpersonal conflict with anyone, which is constant in a creative career like you and I are pursuing, uh, you'll notice that you'll get that kind of taking a deep breath. And if you've been jogging recently, it feels very comfortable and natural to take that breath. You don't stress about it. You're like, okay, we're going to a little increase in intensity here, and that's fine. And, you know, if you take it all the way to doing wind sprints, for example, mm-hmm. wind sprints get you so comfortable with an intensity that you really never achieve in interpersonal conflict that it makes you sort of overtrained for the rest of your life in a really nice way. That's so cool. To think about that while you're actually exercising, how that's going to apply directly to the stress that you feel 
on any given day with, with work or anything else. For sure. And get that cardio spiked. That's the way to deal with stress. If you spike your cardio, you know, what does that mean? Running up some stairs, do some repeats like that, or just in a park, you know, doing a shuttle run, something like that. Or in the gym, you could do it with any kind of little circuit training. But it's different than just pure weight training. It's getting that cardio up. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll, it gives you intensity that you can carry through life for sure. What is your, is, is running your main thing? No, uh, open water swimming is my main form of training. Uh, and I combine that with a lot of paddle boarding, which is a form of surfing in which you stand up on the board and paddle it with a, with a, you know, oar basically. So those are my two forms of exercise. I used to, uh, compete in a sport called aquathlon, which mm-hmm. is a variation on triathlon minus the bike. Okay. And I found that, uh, it was just a very fun way to train for me because I don't have to do three sports, but only two in, in a week. And here's the great thing. Because there's no bike involved, the real triathletes do not take this sport seriously. There is, in fact, a aquathlon world championship, which is part of the triathlon world championships. And so, you know, year after year, I was able to qualify for the world championships in aquathlon in my age group and competed uh, abroad uh, representing the United States in uh, Switzerland in 2010. Sorry? Did you take in some medals? Oh, no, dude. I got destroyed. Are you kidding me? I <laughs> well, went to Switzerland to compete. Oh, oh, yeah. In a full-on American uniform and the whole deal. It was like the fake Olympics. It's the greatest That's thing ever. amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're talking to a champion aquathlete, meaning <laughs> a, a man who found a sport so obscure that he was able to rise to the world level. Have you thought about writing the screenplay for the first American aquathlete champion? Uh, I, when I really want to lose a lot of money, I think I'll do it. Um, no, that's a wonderful idea, Jamie. I, the real <laughs> truth is I don't really believe in writing movies anymore. I just don't think that uh, movies get made unless they're based on a comic book, young adult novel, or, uh, or a sequel. To- Maybe you start with a comic book. <laughs> Aquathalaman? man? Uh, it's, a, it's a sport so lame that no one really even can pronounce it comfortably. <laughs> so, daily routine. Uh, I imagine that for, for you, it... Um, oscillates between you know when you're on a writing staff or leading a writing staff yeah. and not. Can you just break down like what your daily routine consists of? For sure. So let's look at what we're capable of in the writer's room when you know it's really coming down to it. Well, what I've noticed is that in the writer's room, even though these are all professional writers who are being paid to do this job, generally people do not want to get started. And so if the start time is 10, it will never start at 10. It will start at 10.30 if you force it to. Um, I eliminated that uh, as part of my leadership. I said, come in at 9.30 if you want to socialize, but I'm leaving my daughter on the west side, so I'm, when I get here, I want to start. Otherwise, tell me to come in later, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I really enforce that 10 a.m. start time. Um, also, what I've begun to do is while we're working, we don't talk about anything but the script. You can leave the room if you want. I've, if I have five people in here and somebody leaves, that's okay. This thing will keep going. And I, I don't mind that at all. But if you're in the room, let's focus on the work. We're doing the writing. We're either writing a line or we're talking about a story. Or we're brainstorming. It's a conversation that begins and never stops until lunch, at which point we take an hour break. And then we come back and we do it some more. The first hours of the day... 10 a.m. until 1 p.m. are infinitely more productive than the ones in the afternoon. That's worth noticing. The human brain, for the most part, now some people are night writers, I presume, but most people I've noticed are much more uh, creatively productive in the early part of the day. I would actually start a day of writing at 8 if I could, and I do that when I'm outside the room. 
So what I've noticed is that that level of focus can be sustained for many, many hours. It, you really can sustain it for eight hours a day if you want, and I do. I find it a bit tiring to do four hours, a break, and then four more hours, but I'll do it day after day. It's only five days a week after all. Uh, most writers can't really do that comfortably, and they do get a bit burnt out. By the way, I think that's part of where my physical training helps me because there's a certain kind of endurance athlete mm. energy that I can bring to those later hours of the day. Um, what about, I mean, even before the writer's room, yeah. like what's, if, if you're on a staff, um, how long does it, is a typical season, uh, the writing aspect of it? Uh, let's see. It begins typically in May. So that's staffing season. It corresponds to the new shows getting uh, picked up by the networks and kind of trotted out at the so-called upfronts where they show the uh, advertisers, here's our new shows. Give us some money up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, that triggers the staffing of the shows. And that's when pre-production begins. Pre-production is typically eight weeks, sometimes more, as many as 12 weeks sometimes. And you try to just get as many scripts written during that time as you can. Mm-hmm. Then you go into production and depends on how many episodes you're doing, of course. But, uh, you know, if your show is up and running and you're doing 22 episodes, that'll take you through the year all the way to, you know, Christmas break and then the, the winter holidays. You get a big break there and then you finish up the season. Let's see. When do you typically wrap? People wrap in March, typically with 22 episodes. So it can feel like a long time, but there are, there are dips as well because you don't stay in production that whole time. I mean, you're not filming that whole time. Mm-hmm. And so when you stop filming, then it kind of feels like you're getting a breather and you can catch up a bit. So what's your I mean, daily routine? What time do you wake up? Do you exercise every day before you even get to the writer's room? Yeah, well, so when we're in production and I'm on a show, the exercising becomes tricky, the timing of it. Because, you know, the writing takes energy. When I'm talking about those eight-hour days, that just takes a lot of energy. And whether it's physical energy or mental energy, it drains you. And the idea that you're going to work out a lot and do that level of, of mental work, it's just not realistic. So you got to work out on the weekends for sure, and you've got to commit to it. You have to put it on your calendar. If you're married, it's... A discussion with your wife because it's a zero-sum game. You know, if I'm exercising, that means you have uh, kid duties, for example. So you got to put it on your calendar for sure. That sounds like a no-brainer, but it's amazing that the calendar is the most important training tool for an mm-hmm. athlete. So for me, I always work out on the weekends, and then also I get one day in the week where I really have a kick-ass workout. For me, it's Wednesdays as an open-water swimmer. I'm fortunate that there is a primo open water swim that happens every Wednesday morning in Santa Monica. Uh, it's the top triathletes, you know, in Southern California, certainly in Los Angeles. And we swim around a buoy. That buoy mm-hmm. has to be dropped into the water. I'm the guy that drops the buoy in, Wait, the, in water. the ocean. Yeah, in the ocean. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. So I get up at 5:30 on every Wednesday in summer, and I paddle a buoy out on my stand-up paddleboard, and I drop the the buoy, which is tied to an anchor, into the ocean, and then I paddle back in, and then I you know swim with these guys for an hour and a half or two hours. How did you get anchor duty? Uh, it's Louis just Louis. historical. You know, I was I was training with the with the guy who coaches this workout, and uh, there was one buoy out there that the lifeguards put out, but we needed a second one, and so I said I'll paddle it out. The only reason I bring this up is I have to bring that buoy out every Wednesday, and the fact that I have to makes it so that I have an obligation to show up at this workout, and mm-hmm. then you know I stay fit through the summer. Do you feel like you have a a life mission statement or something that you, a filter that with every project and every decision you make that you're kind of looking through. 
I think that is a great question. It is such an awesome question. You know, we were talking about happiness in life, and I was talking about psychotherapy. And, you know, the guys who invented psychotherapy were Carl Gustav Jung and Sigmund Freud. Freud, most notably, but I kind of like Jung in a way more than Freud. Freud said, basically, when you really try to analyze what's going on and what's driving you and what is the point of life, he said, really, it's just a sexual urge. Everything you're doing is to try to get some kind of uh, public advantage to make you more popular so that you can have more intercourse, basically, as a primate. (laughs) Basically, meaning there is no point in life, but recognize that and things will go easier for you. Jung really disagreed with him. Fundamentally, they broke over this issue. Jung believed that the real solution to the problem of neurotics, which is what they called people who had any kind of major anxiety in their time, the solution was to put them on a quest of some kind. And he believed a spiritual quest was actually the solution to everyone's psychological issue, including his own. What does it mean, a spiritual quest? You know, you'll notice, by the way, that the guys who founded AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, no one could ever cure uh, an alcoholic before these guys. And there were plenty of psychotherapists in that time. The, The... Alcoholics Anonymous guys picked up on Jung's theory. In fact, Jung met with uh, those uh, founders, uh, and and they picked it up in their in their whole program. It's basically about finding some kind of spiritual quest and going after it. Now, what does a spiritual quest mean? That's a you know a question which probably is very personal. It means what what feels really really important to you. Mm-hmm. And I do believe actually that Jung may have been right, that for that final feeling of yes, yes, my life is good, it's because you feel you're putting your life's energies into something which matters infinitely according to your own value system, whatever that may be. If you're religious, it's a lot easier because it's pretty clear what you're going after, you know. But if you're not, then it's something to do with your own ethical sense, I suppose. And, And finally, to put it in layman's terms, what at the end of your life, are you going to be glad that you put your life energies into? It seems like if you put that into your life, happiness probably follows. There's a documentary, by the way, called Happy. You can get it on Netflix mm-hmm. streaming. Uh, and uh, it's a compilation of some scientific studies about happiness. And they do say that the things that make a person happy are social connection. Mm-hmm. It's not money, by the way. Absolutely not. Uh, people with $50,000 are as happy as people with $50 billion. Measurably so. But those with uh, meaningful social connections and those who have some kind of uh, non-egoic pursuit seem to be the happiest. So do you have a non-egoic pursuit? Well, it's funny. The reason I said this is such an excellent question is because it's so much on my mind right now. You know, I have spent my life pursuing a goal that was largely economic and anxiety-driven. I was just raised with these values of terror of not succeeding. And it's because my parents were themselves the children of Depression-era people who had enormous economic anxiety. And I never really examined it until recently. But I am starting to realize now that if I don't orient towards something more meaningful in uh, the work that I do, that it will leave me forever dissatisfied. Probably the shortcut for me is the fact that I'm in writing. Writing always provides you with an opportunity to pursue 
a depth of communication, pursue an attempt to change the dialogue for the better. And that does feel meaningful to me. And no doubt it will be increasingly what I pursue in my job in the future. But, you know, you're, for, for all the shows that we've mentioned that you've been part of, you know, like, if nothing else, it's, they're helping connect people um, in a way of just, you know, getting them out of their heads or laughing at the absurdities of life mm-hmm. or relating to a character that you've written. Yeah. Um, so I would say just discovering that and actually having, for, for me, my, my mission is to enchant the world. Uh-huh. That's what my personal kind of um, goal is. You know, that's what I love doing. I love taking people to a new world. One thing that's really hindered me is I got into writing because my mom hated television. She did not like TV in the house and refused to have one there. So books became my hobby. As a reader, I became interested in writing, and that's how I pursued a career in writing. When I graduated from college, I had no skill or even really any interest in television uh, writing, but I had one connection there. I had no connections in journalism. I had none in soap opera, which, honestly, I took a class in soap opera. I was going to go that way. I would do anything for a job, mm-hmm. uh, but I had a connection in TV writing is how I became a TV writer. But I retained the prejudice uh, that my mom uh, had against television. And that's really hindered me because I've gone through my whole career feeling like I'm making something that people shouldn't consume. Mm-hmm. And so I have had to get over that a bit. I'm still trying. And, and I listen very eagerly when you say that there is value in, uh, in television, which is not intuitively uh, something that I, I uh, often feel. There's so much value in television. I mean, more than ever, I think, um, especially with Netflix and so many more ways people consume content that other people create. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, the recurring theme of the last year has been connection. Great. And, you know, in the live comedy space, um, and well, this is what I tell a lot of young comics. I'm like, it's about connection, not validation. And that's a lesson I had to learn the hard way. When I was doing a lot more performing, it was 100% validation. Right. Like me. Yeah. I see how funny I am. Um, and then when you do that, you're, you're, you're subject to um, the ups and downs of your last show. Did people like me? Did the world like me? Or or not, Great. and if not, then you're depressed. But yeah. when you're doing to connect with, to connect with other people, um, you don't take it quite as. Uh, if you didn't have a good set doing stand up, you can ask yourself not why didn't they like me, but why did I not connect with them, and that changes everything. Brilliant. Um, but now I get so much more joy out of just watching a show, a packed room of people, even if whether I'm performing or not. Because they're just connecting to something that I produced as opposed to me being on stage. I think that's brilliant. It's such a great insight, Jamie. I realized as you were saying this that part of the ethical pursuit for me, since I don't really consume television or watch it very much, uh, and never have, the ethical pursuit for me has been as a... Uh, agent in the writer's room making the lives of these poor people better because I remember being the you know staff writer on the show being very anxious and and frequently miserable and so I think there's some sort of ethical quest in uh, making the lives of uh, writers of television better there's an art to everything and there's an art to being a barista or a plumber or anything else and the art will always have to do with connection and you know, for in that specific role of you know running a writer's room, making the, the the lives of the writers better or easier is an art in and of itself. Yeah, definitely. Totally separate from the writing. Exactly, exactly. It's its own craft for sure. Mm-hmm. So we were just talking about the self-critical nature of my brain, 
Yes. And we'll, we'll start with, you know, talking. And you're such a good talker, Brent. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, you can talk about anything. And the one thing that plagues me is the voice in my head. As soon as I start talking, I'll get 30 seconds in. And then there's that voice in my head like, do you know what you're talking about? Right. Are the words coming out right? Um, yes. Instead of just spilling. Right, right. Well, that that's, happens to intelligent people. If you think about it, there are really two parts to the writing process, certainly. And the talking process is just the writing process without writing it down. Those two parts are the generative and the critical. So we talked about the vomit pass. That's the generative, just throwing it out there. The critical is when you look at it with a pen and decide what you're going to cut and what you're going to change. The problem for smart, creative people is that they can do them both at the same time, or they try to do both of them at the same time, or unconsciously they are doing both of them at the same time. And that is something that you're going to want to evolve, Jamie, because you're actually quite articulate, very interesting, and when you let it flow, amazing things come out of your mouth. (laughs) When you start to criticize at the same time, then you get a minor form of writer's block, talker's block, you might call it. Talker's block. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's very common. It's extremely common, especially with intelligent people. You, you notice it with, uh, like when I go to a, a school and there's these grad students in writing, uh, you notice it a lot there because the academic system, if you think about your schooling, it's mostly you're taught to criticize and analyze. Analysis is criticism. There's not a lot of teaching about generation. So we tend frequently uh, to be unbalanced on the side of the critical. And it's completely um, paralyzing. The operative idea for writers like yourself that I would want you to embrace is trial and error. That is a really great way to get through the creative process. Forget about whether it's good or bad, it's trial and error. Now, the way to succeed in the trial and error game, more trials. Mm-hmm. Okay? So if you want to beat the competition, just do more. Try more. Do more lines. Try more podcasts. Ask more questions. And then, you know, if, if, if 80% of them are error, cut them out. You can mm-hmm. edit it. I guess I'm going to wrap up this interview with a question that I asked you probably back in the day on the Long Shot Podcast. But if you could distill down uh, all your life's knowledge into, you know, one soundbite or quote or one guiding principle that you know for you you can look at every day Mm -hmm. what would that be wow and you've given so many in this interview already yeah well i liked what you said jamie about wanting to believe that you can get better at things i feel like i'm living proof of that the truth is i had no talent uh, as a comedy person at all when I entered this career, nobody ever said, oh, Brent Forrester, that funny guy. I wasn't that guy. I didn't know how to write dialogue at all. In fact, I was kind of good at writing short stories. I don't think I was super good, but I was good enough that I thought, well, I'm better at this than anything else I do. Maybe I can find a career here. I was completely naive and basically wrong, completely self-taught. Everything I know about writing comedy is self-taught through analysis of watching TV and and watching other people do it and then just trial and error and doing it every day. And I 100% believe I am proof that you can learn to do anything at the highest level. It's just a craft after all. And isn't everything just a craft after all? You try to do it and try to analyze it and for sure you get better every day. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Actually, I'm going to backtrack. Yeah. Just I'm curious. You've written all these TV shows. Mm -hmm. Is there one episode of one show uh-huh. That stands out as like you feel like your, your greatest work. Uh, there's a few that come to mind. I mean, 
I really liked writing for The Office because we were writing realistic uh, dialogue for grounded characters. And so several of The Office episodes I really enjoy. The second one that I wrote was called Business School, and it had a great emotional ending that still really works for me. So I like that one a lot. There was a Simpsons episode that I wrote that at the time I remember thinking, okay, this is as good as I can do as a Simpsons writer, which was called Lemon of Troy. (laughs) That's my favorite episode ever. I love it. Good. But, you know, if you look at it for pure comedy, a uh, later one that I wrote, Homer Palooza, mm. I think has more kind of just action-packed, funny uh, bits to it. Um, I wrote a sketch for uh, Mr. Show that uh, Verve.com or Nerve.com, God, you'd think I would know if I'm going to quote it, yeah. uh, ranked as like the... F- 40th best sketch ever written. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, the pre-taped Colin show. Where, oh, of course. Of course. Anyway, I, I still like that one as a sketch. I got very lucky with that one. It just it had a complexity that I didn't see when I thought of it. And then it had a cool visual that I put in the end. And, and then David Cross happens to be the perfect guy to act that character. So mm-hmm. I always pointed that one in sketch for sure. I love it. This has been a pleasure. Um, you're, you dressed dapper. As did you. I was just mirroring you. It is quite literally true. You saw me wearing the striped tie and then put on an identical tie. I forget that this is a audio medium, um, so we can't. We'll have to take a picture. Let's do it. Oh, I'll set this in. Is there anything you want to um, promote, or uh, I don't know? World peace. <laughs> okay, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Let's all join hands with our fellow people. <laughs> I want to promote the Immaculata and La Encantada. <laughs> I'm the biggest backer of the Jamie Flam Incorporated takeover. All right, well, there's no takeover in world peace. All right. Thank you, Brent. I will talk to you soon. For sure. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Call me. <laughs> For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network, The Hollywood Improv, Andrew Stevens, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab.